How does a Formula 1 team go from producing one of the most dominant cars of all time to just a year later having a car that was lucky to win a single race? That's the question we'll be answering on today's episode of Bring Back V10s as we look at the fall of the Ferrari empire of the 2000s when Michael Schumacher's streak of five consecutive world championships was finally broken by Fernando Alonso. As always with Bring Back V10s we want to hear from you so let us know your thoughts and memories on the 2005 season and as we near the end of our first series, keep sending your questions about this era to at we are the race on social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s and we'll get stuck into those questions in our series finale. 2005 was a fascinating year in F1 with lots going on and plenty of storylines we could get our teeth into. But this episode isn't about the rise of Alonso and Renault or whether Kimi Raikkonen and McLaren should have won the title. Today, we are focusing purely on why things went so badly for Ferrari in the space of one winter. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for our look back today are two newcomers to bring back V10s, Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. So we'll break you in with our traditional opening question. Mark, when you think of Ferrari's 2005 season, what's the first thing that comes to mind? First thing I think is when it first really started occurring to us that um, they were in serious problems. And that was at the second race in Malaysia where Rubens Barrichello had to just stop because he had no tyres left. It was a, the no, it's first year or the only year of the um, single tyre rule. So you couldn't do a tyre change during the race. And he had to withdraw because there's simply no tyre left. Um, and there was still something like 20 laps to go. So that's when we first got a, a proper inkling that this this really was going to be a problem season yeah and so it turned out to be what about you scott when you think ferrari 2005 other than being a teenager at the time what comes to mind for you um probably the imola stands out uh because it was i think it stands out because it's such an outlier now <laughs> looking back because i think at the time it would have been I've just seen seen it as a you know hope of a of a Ferrari resurgence in the season, and now actually when I look back and think of Ferrari in 05, I actually think of how much of a false dawn that that Imola drive was from Schumacher. Yeah, and we'll come back to Imola, one of those uh, one of those memorable moments from that season. But Scott, if we look back at 2005 in general, was it good for F1 that Ferrari's dominance from the previous years finally came to an end? I think it was because. Um, He'd had a couple of near misses, especially for like obviously 2003 in, in, in particular. And, and 2004 was such a demoralising follow-up to what had been such an interesting season for many reasons in 2003. Um, it, it's a little bit like, for, for, for people to put it in a, in a modern context, it's like following up 2012 with the 2013 F1 season. You, you, you want variety. And while I think at the start of the, the 2000s, it was, it was really good for F1 that Ferrari was winning again. I just think by the time we'd got to 2004, for it to be a fifth consecutive Schumacher title and to be done the way it was, I think everyone was probably of the opinion it would be quite nice, especially with guys like Raikkonen and Alonso sort of showing what they were, were made of in recent seasons. So I think 05 was a, a breath of fresh air. Uh, I just don't think Ferrari needed to do everyone quite as big a favour as they actually did that year. Yeah, if I could just add to that, the, the 2003 se season, in, in that early part of the, the decade went with Ferrari dominance, that 2003 season where they only just took it from McLaren, 
was the outlier, and there was a very good reason for that. It was because they'd configured the F2003 GA to a set of regulations that ended up not being used because we switched at late notice to single single lap qualifying and uh, having to do qualifying with the erased fuel load and that completely changed the uh, requirements of the of the cars and Ferrari had designed a long car basically and um, you needed a short car to get the uh, the weight in the right places and so th- despite having an inappropriately configured car they still just about hung on but then when they were able to do a properly configured car to those regulations in 2004 reverted to the type of dominance that we'd seen in 2002 and I think that created alarm bells for Bernie Eccleston and he's thinking oh no because it looked as though until 2004 it looked as though the others were catching up but then it became clear that actually no the Ferrari was actually the underlying picture was they were as dominant as ever and I think with his promoter's head on he thought that was um, going to be a disaster and he he set about making uh, a crucial change for 2005, and that was the, um, the the no pit stop, no tire change rule for 2005. Yeah, Bernie, Bernie and Max Mosley really jumped into action in 04. So we'll quickly run through how that happened. So in June 2004, the World Motorsport Council instructed the technical working group to come up with measures to slow the cars down for 2005. When the technical working group failed to agree anything within the two-month window it was given, the FIA submitted three proposals, and when the teams couldn't agree on which of those proposals to choose, the FIA chose one for them. So as Mark mentioned there, we had no in-race tyre changes uh, were allowed, but we also had aerodynamic uh, changes to the cars, and the engines had to last for two race weekends. Now, Mark, the, the 2004 cars held on to several lap records for a long time, many of them until... The cars were changed to be made faster in 2017. So you mentioned there that Bernie was trying to do something to stop Ferrari, but was there a justification for slowing the cars down at this stage as well? Yeah, I think there was. I think that um, in terms of the aerodynamic changes, they were quite logical and sensible at the time. That they were being discussed uh, for a long time before the the tight change regulation came in, which was a very much last minute thing. But yeah, there were two separate. There were two separate motivations. Uh, one was to just slow the cars down generally, but the tyre one was... There's no inescapable conclusion that it was there to um, clip Ferrari's wings. Well, and as we as we will find out, it worked. But uh, Ross Braun has talked about this in his book, uh, Total Competition with Adam Parr. And in there, he says that for the first couple of years of Ferrari winning, Formula One was in heaven again. I think, Scott, you, you outlined this at the start. But then when Ferrari kept winning, it started to become tedious... Ross's view was that Max Mosley took the pragmatic view that Ferrari was doing the best job and therefore deserved to win. But as you mentioned, Mark, Bernie Eccleston was, in Ross's words, tearing his hair out at the commercial damage being done by the dominance of Schumacher and Ferrari. So this created a situation where throughout Ferrari's dominance, they were constantly dealing with attempts behind the scenes to get the rules changed to upset the competitive order. And Braun said that Part of his job was to work out where Ferrari could give concessions on this because, and I quote, if you just stonewall everything, then eventually they'll knock the wall down and you have nothing. So you have to find some compromise. And he said that Ferrari didn't mind rule changes because there was a belief that they could do a better job than everyone else when the changes came in. However, he would always try to steer the changes a bit off course, as he put it, to get them heading in a direction that Ferrari felt comfortable with. 
And Ross said Ferrari always wanted 18 months of lead time on the rule changes. So Ferrari had enough time to get their heads around them. And as you mentioned, Mark, in, 20, in 2003, they didn't get that. And of course, for 2005, they didn't as well. Scott, when you hear Ross talking there about some of the things he had to do behind the scenes to steer the rules in a way that didn't upset Ferrari too much. Do you think that's perhaps one of the unspoken or unseen bits of Ferrari's success during this era was how they were playing the game off track? Yeah, I think it all comes down to the the all-round ability that Ferrari had to basically maximise every area going for them. And uh, well, when you've got uh, Michael Schumacher driving one of your cars, you can uh, you can be pretty confident that the driving side of things is probably going to take care of itself. And I guess what um, what was really important was and, and what was a, a really key part of that that momentum that that Ferrari was was able to build was it's not just about having the right people in the right places to um, to make the most of whatever rulebook is put in front of you. You then, as a, as a team and as the chiefs within the team, your job is to make sure that you're not thrown any nasty surprises and that the work that you've done, because the, obviously this for the Ferrari juggernaut was years in the making, and all of that will unravel if if you then suddenly have a surprise sprung on you. So given how meticulous the planning was uh, to get Ferrari at, you know, all singing and all dancing at the start of the 2000s, doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, they not only would they want a decent run-up to any kind of rule changes, they'd also, by definition, be the most vulnerable to, to a short-term rule change because you've got everything working in, like, perfect harmony almost and you throw a spanner into the works and and obviously that could that can all that can all come crumbling down and it's it's interesting that it's interesting that they were obviously hit so emphatically by it and maybe if you look at it in isolation it's a bit of a surprise that they went so aggressively from 2004 to 2005 but that infrastructure and that ability to sort of have long lead up times to everything is the reason it was able to put together such a mega car in 2004 so when you then don't have that same preparation or you have different kind of practices in place it's no wonder that things end up going differently the specific um way that the uh tire regulation hurt ferrari of course was that it was the only top team on bridgestone tires which had a very different behavior and performance pattern to the michelins that the, all the other top teams were on so that's a point that and the critical point that uh, needs to be made. Yeah, and we'll come back to that because that there was there were many parts of the fact that Ferrari had no one else on Bridgestones that played a part in this season. Now, when the rule changes were all firmed up, Ferrari kept pretty quiet in public. Now, Schumacher put out a statement saying the performance of the cars and the cornering forces on the drivers meant something had to be done. And Nigel Stepney said that the 04 to 05 rule changes were as big as the changes or the most significant since we'd seen in the wake of Imola 94. But behind the scenes, Ferrari knew it was in trouble here. Uh, As you've mentioned there, it had an incredibly close relationship with Bridgestone to the point that everyone else, all its rivals, had had left Bridgestone because they felt that they were second-class citizens. Braun believes that one of the arguments made at the time about the tyre rule, um, one of the cards played by those supporting it was environmental as well because uh, the feeling was too many tyres were being thrown away after only 20 laps. And in his book, Braun says, over several years, we had developed a sprint race philosophy where we did several pit stops. Bridgestone were developing soft, super grippy, short life tyres. We were developing cars with small fuel tanks. We were optimising that approach and we were focused on three or even four stop races. Max Mosley would have understood the implications. We were completely screwed. 
we didn't have the knowledge of the rubber or the technology to make a one-race tyre. Michelin had a different approach to Bridgestone and their tyres got better as the race went on. We had a tyre that just fell apart and we couldn't make one that was strong enough. We knew that the change in the rules on the tyres was a serious threat, so I fought it, but the more we protested, the more the others rubbed their hands. Now, something else Ross mentions here, Mark, is that um, he claims he wasn't aware Ferrari had a rules veto back then, uh, but Ross believes that Jean Todd didn't use it because he felt it would have been wrong to use it. So do you think, mate, were Ferrari, were Ferrari just always reluctant to use that veto, or was there perhaps a feeling that they knew they couldn't fight too hard against changes that were supposedly going to knock them off their perch for the good of F1. Yeah, I think they, they used the, the actual use the veto. They prefer to have the threat of the veto hanging around implicit in, in their position. But um, specifically in this case, in the 2005 case, there were there was two uh, sort of conflicting movements politically. So on the one hand, Ferrari was very closely aligned with the FIA because this is the time of the GPWC, the Manufacturers' Championship, that were the other teams that Ferrari wasn't at that point aligned with, um, who were, had the implicit threat of going off to form their own championship because they were very against um, the engine freeze rules that the FIA was trying to bring in. And so politically, the, the other manufacturer teams were aligned against the FIA, but Ferrari was aligned with them. And so in that sense, they were against the run of play in terms of the uh, competitive organizers and you know, promotional aims of Bernie Eccleston. He was wanting to clip Ferrari's wings, but not for any political reasons, just, just to give a closer season, closer championship. And I think the overriding concern was that Ferrari and the FIA remained aligned. They went to throw that away, that relationship away, just for the sake of a, a regulation change that would affect them competitively for one season. And I think uh, this is what was missed at the time, was only apparent in hindsight. Yeah, and the problems weren't all about the tyres. We'll look at the, the other rule changes and the influence they had on Ferrari, because there were changes to the cars as well. So the front wing was raised, the rear wing was brought forward, uh, the diffuser height was reduced, and the bodywork in front of the rear wheels was cut back. And the FIA said uh, its estimate was this would result in a 20% or more loss of downforce. And Ferrari started the season with a modified F2004, dubbed the F2004M. And it became clear in testing, actually, that this car was off the pace and everybody was tipping McLaren and Renault based on pre-season. But Renault were particularly cautious because they thought that Ferrari was probably holding something back after the way it had demolished everyone the year before. But after a few races with the... Uh, a couple of races with the F2004M... It doesn't go well, and Ferrari brings forward the F2005, which Flavio Briatore said was great news for its rivals because it means Ferrari's rushing the car because it's in trouble. And Braun, at the time, gave an interesting description of how the aero rules had hurt Ferrari. And he said, when the regulations became clear, our transmission and engine package was not very good for them because once you constrain the diffuser on the outside, the central part of the diffuser becomes much more important. So you have to expand the inside of the diffuser and then look at your engine and gearbox in a more extreme way. We decided we didn't have the right package, so we had to start again with the transmission. Mark, is this a lesser told part of the 2005 story that perhaps these diffuser changes in particular 
worked against Ferrari because it compromised them in an area that they couldn't react to quickly. If you've effectively got to redesign or rework your engine and transmission, that's not the work of a moment. So we always focus on the tyres because that was that was the obvious problem. But does this does this side of it get sort of pushed to the side? And did this actually have perhaps a bigger impact than we give it credit for? I think the tyres were the first order problem, but the regulations did hurt them. Um, they just just by chance, um, just in the way that everybody's cars had evolved differently, the 2005 regulations meant that the Ferrari gearbox was A, in the wrong place, and B, was too wide. It was a, a wide, short gearbox rather than a long, thin one that other teams developed that way anyway. So they had to spend probably, I think it was three months, something like that, designing a completely new gearbox, and that's time that would more had they not had to do that they would probably have had a better integration of the uh, rear suspension with the new diffuser and which was a particular particular strength of the Renault um the Renault did a completely new rear suspension that essentially merged the bottom um lower wishbone in with the the flow from the diffuser so yes the, the regulations did hurt ferrari um but i i would say that that probably would not have been um, uh, an overwhelming factor uh, had they had tire tire parity, especially as when you um, when you consider what was said at the time, and we'll, I, perhaps we'll get more into the the specifics of when that final 05 car was launched. But Glenn, I remember reading in the the research you put together for this that Braun called this the best car that they produced, the 2005 car. So when when it did finally emerge, it wasn't like, at the time anyway, it wasn't like Ferrari were trying to hide behind the impact of, of, of the regulations. And if given the quality of the 2004 car, it's a very, very big step for Ferrari to then say that this one's e even better. So yeah, I think as um, uh, as Mark pointed out, there, there, there is an impact there, but it's it's quite clear from what Ferrari sort of said at the time and has said since that uh, the fundamentals of the car weren't the big limiting factor. Yeah, and that was a narrative that Ferrari would push as the year went on. So the F2005 makes it de its debut in Bahrain and it looks pretty quick but unreliable. And then we get to Imola, which Scott has mentioned already. Schumacher goes off in qualifying, so he starts 13th, but he charges through the field hunts down Alonso and there's that famous epic duel in the final stint of Alonso hanging on to win the race. So Ferrari doesn't win, but as Schumacher crosses the line, there's footage of his engineer, Chris Dyer, looking across the pit wall and saying, we're back. And afterwards, Schumacher calls it a stunning performance and he singles out Bridgestone for special praise. He says, they have suffered in the first stages of the season from some bad publicity the discussion about our tyres will surely come to an end now. Oh, Michael, how wrong you were. After our performance at Imola, and we're set to do really well at the next races. At times in that race, Schumacher was nearly two seconds a lap quicker than everybody else. And obviously looking at it with hindsight, we can perhaps suspect that Bridgestone was on a good day and Michelin was on a bad day. But at the time, Schumacher was saying, we're back fighting for the championship Mark, you were there as you were for every race in 2005. And I guess we can look at the race with hindsight, but also what was it like at the time? Was was there a feeling that Ferrari was back or was there already the possible suspicion that this was just a, a one-off occurrence where perhaps Bridgestone had got it right and Michelin had got it wrong? Yeah, because of the timing of Bahrain and, and Imola, his third and fourth races, and he he'd qualified the new car second in Bahrain and then had this very close race, as you say, at Imola. 
It was a, there was a feeling that, you know, Ferrari and Bridgestone together seemed to be making progress. And the expectation at that point was probably that they would go on to win races. There still was an underlying concern about the, the performance pattern of the Bridgestones. And it was um, that it couldn't combine um, a, a long duration with um, competitive lap times on a any circuit that generated a lot of heat in the in the tire surface because basically the the Michelin had a bendy sidewall was very um, which allowed its tread to to remain very stable where the tread meets the the track so Michelin were able to go quite soft and compound whereas the Bridgestone with a, a very stiff sidewall tended to get the tread pulled one way and the other um, through a corner. And so it generated more heat, and therefore they couldn't go as hard with the compounds. But on a on a circuit that didn't generate all that much heat, um, the Imola, Imola being one, uh, Montreal another, it, it was okay. It was it, the, the tires worked quite well. And I think um, in the practice at Indianapolis before the the big problem unfolded with the Michelin runners, uh, Ferrari was looking in quite good shape there as well. And there's another track that didn't generate a lot of heat in the in the in the surface, so. In hindsight, Bahrain and Imola being the third and fourth races made it look like progress, and actually it was just a, a couple of races that um, the conditions happened to suit them. And with the benefit of hindsight, I think it's easy to look at um, the the misery of the the start of the year and how that was so that contrasted so severely with once the new car made its debut. I can see why even a team like Ferrari and a driver like Schumacher could go, sort of get swept up in that that early optimism, but. The, the bottom line, and obviously you wouldn't have wouldn't have known this at, at the time, and Ferrari wouldn't have seen it. But when you're rushing through things effectively, that or doing things in a matter of days and weeks that you would normally give a month to or or, or two months to, um, and something as fundamental as the tyres, if you only recognise a weakness when the season starts, it's not something that's going to be um, uh, fundamentally addressed in, in 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 a couple of weeks. And I think that sort of inherent positivity was as much because they weren't using the 04 car, the updated 04 car. And, you know, there was a, there's a post that Schumacher put on his website um, ahead of uh, Bahrain where he said that the first two races of the year had been screwed up and um, Todd had said that they were on the defensive and Barrichello said they needed to spend three weeks solid working on tyre management. So there's just inherent misery after the first two races and any glimmer of, of hope would have, been, would have seen, been seen as this bright light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and the next few races after Imola were quite difficult, but the general belief from Ferrari was still that the car is quick, but they can't switch the tyres on for a single lap and that's leaving Schumacher and Barrichello too far down the order, then they can't make the progress in the race. As Mark mentioned, there's a bright spot in Canada where Schumacher's on the front row. The Ferraris finished second and third, although the, both Renaults and Montoya's McLaren fall by the wayside in that race. And then we get to Indy, where, as mentioned, uh, Ferrari are doing quite well after practice. They're pretty happy. I mean, Barrichello says uh, it's our best Friday for a long time. And... We've, just a quick one. We've had a lot of requests already for an episode on Indy 05. So in Series 2, we definitely will do that. So we won't dwell on it too long for here uh, at this point. But around this time, Braun was quoted in the media saying that Ferrari is thinking about switching attention to 2006. We've got rule changes with V8 engines coming in. And he says that if Ferrari pours all, pours all of its effort into 2005 and sacrifices the following year's car, he's not sure that would be the right choice. 
So Schumacher qualifies fifth uh, Indianapolis, and then the panic grows from Saturday into Sunday about if the Michelin teams can get through a race and get through that final banked corner safely. So as I think we all know, the Michelin teams withdraw at the end of the formation lap and Ferrari gets its only win of the season and it's a 1-2 and a six-car race against Jordan and Minardi. Schumacher says, this is not the right way to win my first one of the year. Before we talk about Indy specifically, this was the visual indication we had at the time of how few teams were on Bridgestone tyres. You know, once you literally took all the Michelin cars off the grid. You have that that sparse uh, six-car grid with the uh, the yellow and black cars at the back. And one of the things Ferrari said during this season was that they didn't have a benchmark to compare themselves against on the same tyres. And Michelin supported this because Pierre Dupasquier, a Michelin boss at the time, said that in 2004, when his teams were taking a beating from Ferrari... If it hadn't been for the form of BAR, which finished second in the championship and took a lot of podiums, particularly with Jensen Button, the underperforming Michelin teams like McLaren, Renault and Toyota could have used the tyres as an excuse, but they didn't have that because there was a team on Michelin's doing quite well. Mark, we ended up with more teams on Bridgestones for 2006. Do we think this year was a case of perhaps Bridgestone and Ferrari realising that it gone to, their relationship had gone too far and that they, they did need other teams on the grid with the same tyres? Yeah, they, they were suffering a little bit through uh, lack, lack of test mileage and um, getting Williams on board uh, brought another, you know, another reasonable um, pace team to the, to the table and they get more data. So yeah, that was definitely part of it. Um, I think another... The Bridgestone tyre of 2006, the, the tyre that they went on to produce for 2006, ended up being pretty much um, a Michelin concept of tyre. And I think basically the 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 Bridgestone concept, which was um, it wasn't really strictly a radial unlike the Michelin, um, I think it was just unsuited to uh, long race stints. I think fundamentally it just it just was, and this caused Bridgestone to reassess their their. Um, the technical approach, um, the whole philosophy of, of what constitutes a, a Bridgestone racing tyre. And it, it, as it happened, the, the reintroduction of um, tyre stops in 2006 would probably have saved them anyway, even if they'd stayed with the old concept. But I think they would be the first to admit that actually it enabled them to make a much better tyre than they'd been making before. I think the um, the only thing I would add on the, the, the Bridgestone stuff is when when you reflect on that that partnership, I I I, I agree that in the at the time uh, you see the weakness of having too many eggs in, in one basket. But the I guess the flip side of the argument is that you don't have the success that precedes that downfall without necess- without that partnership going in, in that way. So while while it definitely caused problems and had they not got on top of things the, the way they did, then perhaps it would have triggered a, a bigger spiral. But if you take the first half of the decade as sort of its own thing and you're trading multiple titles against one bad season, I, I guess on reflection you, you take it. But I certainly don't think they'd have been judge, weighing it up in, in, in such terms at the time. Yeah, and Luca de Montezemolo from Ferrari, was, uh, he was complaining about these rules all season. And after Indy, he used it as a chance to criticise the rules rather than Michelin. 
And he says, uh, the fact that tyres can't be changed during a race is against nature. So when there are problems, they tend to be magnified, resulting in what unfortunately happened in Indianapolis. It's a championship I've long been defining as one of tyres. Sooner or later, the risks of the most extreme innovations were almost inevitable. Mark, thinking back to Indy specifically, was this a black mark against the rules or just a total mess up from Michelin? Um, it was an unforeseen combination of circumstances and basically the, the particular type of loads that you got on the banking at Indianapolis, um, so it was a combined um, lateral and vertical load, which was very unusual for a tyre to have to, to go through and for about five seconds at a time, that, in combination with the effect on the aero of the uh, heightening the front wing, meant that the peak loads on the tyre were greater because the air was not as the airflow was not as consistent as when the front wing was in ground effect. So we had a nice constant downforce. Now, with the new regulation, the 05 regulations and the higher front wings, you had a downforce and then a detachment and then downforce and a detachment. So a much more spiky set of loads on the on the tyre, um, which was fine with a Bridgestone, which had those big um, stiff sidewalls, which was part of its old-fashioned philosophy, but it wasn't fine for a bendy sidewall tyre like the Michelin. And eventually, after a few laps of that, the steel casing inside would just collapse and separate from the wall, and you'd get a catastrophic failure. So it was really... Um, I wouldn't say it was a failure, really, of, of Michelin's that specific tyre. It was that 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 specific tyre would, in turned out in hindsight, was totally unsuited to that combination of factors that was unforeseen. Yeah, an, an imperfect storm, perhaps you could say. So, as I say, we won't dwell on this for too long, but we'll look at Ferrari's position, because this is a Ferrari episode, and this was our only win of the season. And Braun has said in his book... We were in a period where we were feeling very aggrieved because of what had gone on with the tyre rules. We were feeling persecuted. So our mindset was not to have much sympathy when the perpetrators of the one-race tyre had a problem. And obviously there were there were talks of compromises for the Michelin teams. You know, could they drive through the pit lane? Could a chicane be put in before that corner? Braun says that Ferrari's position was to take a back seat and let Mosley do all the arguing with those teams although Ross does concede that we didn't encourage a solution that would have been to our disadvantage. Uh, the other teams tried to pin it on Ferrari, trying to make out that Ferrari is the one responsible for if there would be a proper race or not. And there was obviously criticism of Ferrari being selfish, and Schumacher countered that at the time. He, he cited the 2001 Italian Grand Prix, where the drivers tried to have an agreement for no overtaking at the first two chicanes, uh, because a marsh had been killed there in 2000. And obviously it was a sombre mood in the paddock because this was just after the 9-11 attacks in New York. Schumacher said that some of those the team bosses had talked their drivers out of agreeing with that um, idea from the drivers. And now they were the ones uh, arguing and causing all the arguments at the Indy situation. So he said it's their problem, not ours. Scott, looking back at Indy, do you think, was it up to Ferrari? Was it Ferrari's business to do more here for the good of F1? Looking at looking at the season and looking at this episode, it, it's it's almost a shame that they got a victory because it goes against the narrative of the season. But they really shouldn't have won a race. 
But was it really up to them to sort out what went on here? Uh, well, I can, from a competitive point of view, I completely understand why in that situation, I, I do, I, I do see why. I think Jean Todd said afterwards that they had carried, uh, they had carried a disadvantage because of their tyres from the start of the year. Now all of a sudden they were in a rare situation where. I get purely that purely down to the sort of uh, this you know storm of factors. Suddenly they had an advantage. The advantage being that only six cars was capable of taking the start of of the race. Um, I guess if you look at it, um, you try to look at it objectively from a point of view of safety. Um, maybe they maybe they should have done more. Uh, but at the same time, if the race is going ahead and the promoter's not calling it off and the FIA's not intervening on safety grounds, then ultimately you've got a lovely get-out-of-jail-free card there from Ferrari because their point is, well, if it is inherently unsafe and this is not the right way to proceed, then the the, the others the others would get involved. One thing I would add is that um, they... Uh, didn't didn't uh, Schumacher and Barrichello do their do their best during that race to prevent uh, to 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 have a winless season because they they very nearly uh, spurned their golden opportunity, didn't they? With the with the near miss, it was after a pit stop, right? It was as Michael came out of the pits, yeah, and uh, he was slightly behind as Rubens because Rubens had pitted before. He was slightly behind as Rubens was alongside, but um, he sort of. Intimidated him, intimidated him to one side. But uh, had Rubens not moved, yeah, they would have crashed, and uh, Tiago Montero would have won the Grand Prix. And we would have had, what would it have been Carter Kane and one of the Minardis on the podium? So it would have been Albers, wouldn't it, on the podium? What, yeah, a, what a podium right. that would have been. Let alone Ferrari not um, not winning a race. Uh, that would have been the craziest podium in F1 history. <laughs> I think people might look back on that race a bit more fondly if a Jordan had won it. Let's let's talk about the car again briefly because the season is still going badly. Indy doesn't cover that up and the Italian media starts banging for blood as it does in these situations. And a lot of the focus is on Aldo Costa because he was given more responsibility working with Rory Byrne around this time. So in the media, they're starting to pin the problems perhaps on Costa. And Ross Braun comes out in the Italian media and defends Costa aggressively. He says... The philosophy behind the F2005 isn't Costa's, it's one that's employed by Ferrari over a number of years. Rory wouldn't have made a different car to the F2005, which is an excellent car on the basis of comparative tests that we've done. The F2005's working group is the one that created the F2004. Is it possible that all of these engineers have become idiots? Uh, Costa will be responsible for the 2006 car and I hope for many other cars to come. Both us and Bridgestone know we'll come out of this situation. Now, we've touched on this a bit already, but Ferrari kept pushing that the whenever the car showed a flash of speed, that was a sign that this was a good car fundamentally that was being held back by the tyres. Is that argument too simple, Scott? Or, you know, is, is there possibly, could you say that if you can't make your car quick all the time, there's something wrong with the car if you can't get it in that window? Or... Do you agree with Ferrari that there were enough flashes of speed that it clearly was a quick car? Um, I think when it comes to tyres, it's often an easy uh, it's an easy out, or it's seen as an easy out. But fundamentally, um, you know, the tyres are what connect the car to the track. And if the tyres aren't doing what they should be doing, or doing things as best as they could be doing, then it is going to be fundamentally limited, isn't it? Um, you could have if if you put the uh, if you put the the Renault from for that year, for example, 
on on a crap set of tires, then it's gonna it's gonna do a lot worse, isn't it? It, it will ju- it will just go it will just go more slowly. What what I would stop short of saying is that flashes of speed prove that the car's fundamentally good because even the need for the need for flexibility in in a setup and to to respond to different conditions is often at least the a characteristic of a of a fundamentally good car. So I wouldn't necessarily I, I think Ferrari you could look at it slightly simply and say that Ferrari would have had more and greater peaks through the year because presumably Bridgestone could have had more than just one or two flashes. But I, I, I do agree with them fundamentally that if the tyres aren't working, then it doesn't really matter how good your car is. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that the um, two th- car for car, if you just did a strict back-to-back comparison with the 2004 and the 2005 Ferrari, the 2005 Ferrari was faster, there's no, no question of that. We saw that it's in reduction in Bahrain. Um, it wasn't as big a leap as perhaps needed to be made, given the uh, progress that McLaren and Renault had made. But that was because of that um, second-order gearbox problem, the design problem that we we talked about. But it wasn't a bad car. It was if you'd put it on um, Michelin's, I'm sure it would have won a lot of races and would have been fighting for the title. It was unfair to lay the problem at. Um, Costa's door. The, 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 if there was a design shortfall in it, it was um, because the regulations had come together the way they had, and um, the 2006 car that he was just as much involved in um, was was a flyer. Yeah, and Aldo's had a pretty good career since then, so I think we can eliminate that theory. Now, Mark, you explained really well how um, in the 2004 Ferrari was properly designed for the rules that had come in at short notice for 03, and Ferrari did an amazing job with that car. Do we have to take into consideration, though, that how much McLaren and Williams dropped the ball in 2004? So did that did that exaggerate how good the 2004 Ferrari looked? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Williams of that year was the, the walrus-nosed one, which was just a fundamentally mediocre car. Um, so, yes, I mean, they... The, both of what were at that time Ferrari's um, main competitors dropped the ball in a big way. So yeah, that, that definitely played a part in the yeah. picture. If we go through the summer of 2005, the trend becomes Bridgestone constantly bringing new tyre specs to the races and the aim was always at improving that single lap performance to get the Ferraris up the grid. And Ferrari were obsessed with tyre temperature and tyre preparation. So during the summer, uh, it emerged that Rory Byrne had been tasked with um, coming up with a new tyre heating mechanism and Ferrari emerged with um, instead of tyre blankets they had tyre boxes and their rivals complained about these um, because the aim was to heat the rim as well as the tyre but Charlie Whiting said it was fine because inside all it used was the normal heating elements from inside a set of tyre blankets but after a bad British Grand Prix Schumacher says Ferrari appeared to be going backwards instead of forwards and he says that during a race our lap times get slower and slower, whereas the Michelin runners seemed to get better and better as the race went on. And a theory that started to come out during the summer was actually that Bridgestone's performance was being hurt the more Michelin rubber was being laid on the track. And Todd explains that um, this could be a credible theory because Bridgestone could never replicate the problems they were having when Ferrari went testing on its own because there was no Michelin rubber going down. So Ferrari ends up in a situation where it can't actually simulate the problem that seems to affect it 
on race weekends. So does that all add up for you, Scott? Does that sound like a credible theory and one that would make it very hard for Ferrari and Bridgestone to put it right? Uh, it's a theory that's very difficult to prove, uh, which I guess makes it quite a nice theory to turn to because how are people going to prove that it's, uh, it's incorrect? Uh, there, there is logic to it, um, especially once you if, if you, if, if you felt that you were getting to the point where you're starting to address that one lap weakness that was inherent at the start of the season and then all of a sudden the, the, that that improvement on a on a on a Saturday in qualifying is suddenly met with uh, with a reverse or or, or a stagnation of, of the the previous pecking order on, on Sunday. So they would have been sort of they'd have been scratching their heads, thinking, "Well, hang on a second, why is this all round?" You know, if you think was it France, I think where you know they they had the the new Bridgestone tire, and but by the end of the the race, even though I think Schumacher's on the podium, he's a minute a minute adrift. So. Um, if if you had this, um, if you if you if you were in normal conditions where the tire is working with all the variables you expect, because that's obviously how it all comes down to with simulations and modelling and stuff like this, then you should be getting the results that you expect. So it does suggest that there is a variable or something is going on that that neither Bridgestone nor Ferrari could either see properly on the data or could simulate or, or could do anything about, but. To, to really prove it, obviously, you need to know exactly. It all comes down to chemistry, doesn't it? And how the track changes, the surface changes, the temperatures change. So given how confused everybody was, maybe that, maybe that is what, what was going on. But um, again, it's just it's such, such a minefield of uh, factors to get into if you want to prove whether it's right or wrong. Do you recall that one from the time, Mark? Yeah, I do. And it, it tallies very much with the different way the two tyres work. The... The Michelin depended for more of its performance from chemical grip, which is the way that the um, molecules of the, the tread mix with those on the track surface. And the Bridgestone relied more on mechanical grip, which is just physically how the tyre gets hold of the surface and pulls against it in the opposing way to create grip. Both tyres have got both mechanisms, obviously, but the, the balance was more that the, the Michelin relied on chemical grip and the Bridgestone on mechanical grip. So... Yeah, the more Michelin rubber that went down, the more that that, that would tally. The, the, at a molecular level, it would work and it would bond. Whereas um, you're making the surface smoother, so it, it's it's more difficult for a tyre that's deriving more of its performance from mechanical grip. So it tallies very much with how the two tyres worked um, and, and the, the design philosophy of the two tyres. Yeah, now Ferrari and Bridgestone... They keep throwing basically softer and softer tyres at the car during the summer. And we do see an, Im an improvement in the qualifying performance. But as Scott hinted at there, we get some uh, we get some bad ends to races, shall we say. Some difficult final stints for Schumacher. Um, he has severe drop-off at the end of the German Grand Prix and falls out of the podium places. In Hungary, he's on pole and he finishes second. But once he lost the lead to Raikkonen halfway through the race, he just went into full tyre management mode and he ends up more than half a minute behind Raikkonen by the end. Bridgestone then go to Turkey, which was new for that season. And the decision is that the tyres they've got are too soft for that track. Obviously, a, a track with some high loads in the corners, particularly turn eight. And so Ferrari's back on the harder tyres and it had a terrible, terrible weekend. Um, Schumacher has a clumsy collision with Mark Webber in the race. He says it's our worst performance in a long time and a major setback after the progress 
of the summer. Mark, how do you think Schumacher adapted to having such a difficult season after that run of championships? Weber was really critical of him here. He said he was very, very slow and out of order for the way he tried to defend that pass too late. Schumacher had a few of these incidents. There was one with Heidfeld at the start of the year. There's obviously a, a terrible Chinese Grand Prix later in the season. Do you think he was a little bit in shock at how badly Ferrari had been knocked off its perch and it maybe affected sort of the way he went racing that year? Yeah, I think it was a little bit. Um, I mean, Michael's, even in competitive cars, um, Michael's wheel-to-wheel um, track record is, is littered with a few a few of those. So um, some maybe deliberate, um, some less so. But yeah, it was... I think the the Weber incident there was a certain belligerence because he was you know having such a bad time, and um, when he's put in situations where he's starting from the back of the grid, um, he's probably not. He's probably just doing a you know a shit or bust approach to the race, and it, it invariably didn't work for him. So um, yeah, definitely Michael's. Um, I wouldn't say it was a, it was a judgment lapse i'd say is more of a an attitude that wasn't prepared to encompass the, the competitive limitations he'd been put in there were there were a couple of examples um in in the season where where you could still see that uh, even for in, in the lower regions of the of the points that schumacher mentality didn't dwindle when he felt something was was there for the taking the move on barrichello monaco for example, late on, which I think Rubens was uh, would have probably described as rude uh, at best. He took it badly, certainly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's not that um, Schumacher's a professional. The, the, you don't win seven world titles by being the sort of uh, guy whose motivation just drops and, and disappears completely just because you're, you're having a bit of a grump, basically, in, in a race. But it's um, it, it's fair to say that that sort of that negative atmosphere started to become... Uh, just inherent within within the team. I think was it um, uh, it was ahead of Hungary. I think where where, where Todd had been. Just uh, you 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 think of how teams talk about their their prospects now, and even a team like Williams in 2019 and 2020 is saying that they're looking forward to going racing. And in in Hungary in in, in 05, Todd's talking about feeling embarrassed about what the minimum objectives can be and how hurt he is that. You can't set proper targets and stuff like this. You know, this is the guy at the very top of the of the tree. So if he's talking like this, you know, why why should a, a driver, when they're being overtaken or when they're just falling further and further away, even if they go into time management mode, you, it's it, I I feel that even for someone like Schumacher, who might seem robotic when we look back at his career in some ways, that cannot. How can that not impact your mentality when you go racing and? I, I can see it being quite easy where I think Schumacher said that there are a couple of races as well where small things, but, you know, where a seventh or an eighth is on the on on the table, but he finishes ninth or something like that. There are just little things where if you're in a different mindset and just you're approaching it slightly differently, you you do just get more out of it. Yeah, so we end up heading to the Italian Grand Prix, Ferrari's home race, and ticket sales are down on 2004, perhaps unsurprisingly. And at this point, Schumacher and Ferrari finally properly crack and, you know, let Bridgestone have it in public, shall we say. 
And uh, Schumacher says ahead of Monza, the car is the same. We've been working very hard on the tyres, but unfortunately we didn't get it right. So far, we've not found a solution to cure this problem. How can we be on pole position in Hungary if the car has a lack of mechanical grip? I think there's a very straightforward answer. It was so obvious we didn't have the grip we wanted to have in Turkey on the tyre side. I don't think we need to argue about that. It's too obvious. If I say anything else, I'll make myself look stupid and there is no point in doing so. And then he finishes um, quite a long rant by saying, maybe we are completely stupid not knowing how to work on the car or the tyres don't work. Now, we know from working in the media that everyone is always trying to protect their own team and, and look, a- look after your own and you try not to, or they try not to lash out in public, but we love it when they do. But Mark, do you think that Ferrari got to the point where, as Schumacher said there, it had to blame it on Bridgestone because they were going to look stupid to say anything else? Yeah, and also I think it got to the point of just frustration, frustration for all all, all that time knowing that the fundamental problem was the tyres and that it wasn't something that they were, they'd been able to change because basically the, the, the philosophy of tyre was wrong for that um, type of racing. And there was no matter how much they uh, tried to tweak tyres, how much they tried to tweak the cars, it was just fundamentally the wrong type of tyre. And I think they'd come to the realisation of this by Monza and it, it was just, you know... Frustration, just competitive frustration had been asked the same question again and again when it was obvious what the answer was. Given things were given things were changing through the season as well with what Bridgestone were trying to do, it's it, it's that sort of dual frustration because it's not just that you're off the pace and, and struggling and you want to protect everybody because okay, well we didn't get it right this time, but we'll get it right next time. It's that I guess it's that promise and it's, you know, it's the hope that kills you. Every time something new turns up, you think, okay, this is, we're, we're going to get it right this time. And, and, and you don't. And there's a false dawn and then it, it goes badly again. And then the car's on pole and then it gets worse again. So if it had been sort of, if it had been a fairly smooth year in terms of constantly stagnating around fifth and sixth, I suspect you wouldn't have had outbursts like that because what you 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 accept the situation earlier and earlier and i similar to what we were saying before about what we saw in maybe Schumacher's driving at times or his attitude within races not surprising at all that he finally snapped off track when just after time and time again trying to get better there's there's just no sign of real improvement both ferraris are outside of the points at monza which seems unthinkable and things didn't get any better from there. It's a terrible end to the season. Somehow Schumacher is third in the Drivers' Championship, Ferrari are third in the Constructors, although that's slightly a reflection of the inconsistency of the midfield teams and, of course, the fact they picked up 18 points at Indy. The year, the year finishes, perhaps fittingly, with Schumacher colliding with Christian Albers' Minardi on the way to the grid, and he spins out the race behind the safety car. And Todd sums the year up by saying it's good to finish a bad season in a bad way because, in his words, it's good to have your nose in the shit so that you smell it clearly and react. And Ferrari did react. As we said, Bridgestone changed the tyres for next year and um, the rules changed and Schumacher very nearly wins the championship, you know, a proper championship fight with Alonso. But Michelin, we won't go into 2006 too much because it's got the wrong engine for starters, but Michelin was livid about that rule change um, and spent a long time arguing with the FIA, talking of hidden motivations. 
And obviously a year later, it left F1 entirely because F1 wanted to bring down costs and get away from a tyre war. Mark, when we got to the end of 2005, was there a justification for going back to tyre changes in races or could F1 have just stuck it out by that point? I think if we'd had the tyre that Bridgestone subsequently produced in 2006, it would have been fully competitive in a, a, a non-tyre change formula. Um, it, it was, as I said earlier, pretty much a, a Michelin philosophy of tyre with a um, more flexible sidewall, a true radial, um, very planted tread surface. It worked very in a very similar way to the Michelin and actually had better compounds um so but the second half of 2006 they were able to give um ferrari a tire advantage usually um so i think that that would have carried them through um even even if with the rules hadn't changed they would have been fine so what do you think scott does that mean that we should have just stuck with what we had and bridgestone would have got back on the pace anyway so a meaningless rule change um, yeah, I think so. I think that the the danger is if you when when you bring in a, when you bring in a new rule and you you have all of these justifications behind it to then go back on it after one season, it just you're never going to escape the the apparent the the motivations as as Michelin called it behind a, behind a decision like that. It's un it's unsurprising that it. it it irritated or angered Michelin so much. I could see why uh, Ferrari and Bridgestone would, would would want it because, but but what it what it does it, it just sort of un it undermines the the legitimacy of of these kind of rule changes, and it also just gives it just provides a get out of jail free card that you shouldn't have at this sort of level. Uh, this is elite, uh, Formula One, and it is the elite part of, of motorsport. It's meant to be the best of the best, and you know Braun said. Uh, they all said Todd and Schumacher and everybody through 2005 that uh, the rule changes had given Michelin an advantage and hurt Bridgestone. But that was only the case because of the product that they'd been producing up to that point and they'd continued to produce in 05. So once you've got those new rules, you have to just re redesign your product. And what the emphasis should have been on would have been, okay, for this season, this has caused a problem for, for Bridgestone and it cannot change this fundamental specification, compound, construction, whatever you want to call it, during the season with incremental up, updates or, change, or, or changes. But if we're keeping this for 2006, they've got all of this data for why this doesn't work, then they should be able to introduce the proper product for, for 06 and you just chalk 05 up to being an absolute disaster of a season. To... Um, to to let them get away with it the way the way they did is a is a shame. I I, I really don't like short life uh, rule changes. Yeah. Just lastly, Mark, why why was it changed back so quickly? Was that pressure from Ferrari, or did Bridgestone perhaps not know at that stage that they could work it out for two thousand and six? I assume that if they'd known already, oh, don't worry, we've got a good tire for next year. They wouldn't have been pushing for it, but is that what happened? Was was this Ferrari pressure to get the rule change back? Why did it happen? Yeah, I think it was Ferrari pressure rather than Bridgestone pressure, and plus it brings us back to this political alignment that I was talking about earlier, whereby um, the, the the battle for control of the whole championship was really hotting up, um, and it was essential that Ferrari that the F for the FIA to keep Ferrari on side. And so Ferrari was sort of pushing against an open door, really, in um, asking for the 
uh, return to tyre changes. Um, they wouldn't necessarily have had the same confidence that Bridgestone was going to come up with a good tyre that, that Bridgestone had, because Bridgestone would have had much more detail on that. Um, so I think it was, yeah, definitely political pressure from Ferrari at a time when that was deemed to be very, very crucial to the FIA. Those those politics are those politics are horrible because you you get into a position where um, Ferrari adopt a uh, a stance of well this is a step forward for safety because you're not going to have tire blowouts and you're going to be able to run properly and this is fine and you have the FIA saying well I don't know what your problem is because the in, the democratic process has been respe respected and then Michelin turn around and they're saying you've told us to spend loads of money designing tires that can go what three times as far four times as far as as they've been able to go in the past, and that's cost a load of money. And now you, you're saying that you need to go to a single tyre supplier in a, in a year's time or a couple of years' time, and that's all in the interest of saving costs. But in the meantime, you want the tyre manufacturers to in, in 06 to produce another completely new tyre because we're going back on the rule change. So I think uh, I, my tone is sarcastic at the, the beginning, but the, the, the reason being is you've got three, three different entities there adopting certain positions and Michelin's is the only one that seems to be absolutely rooted in any sense the other two is just sort of turning a blind eye to the reality of what's going on yeah it was all very politically motivated all the changes that during around that time were very politically motivated and Formula One suffered for it because instead of grasping the nettle and coming up with the the correct technical solutions um, and the correct um, framework to address the problem which was uh, basically one of cost control um, versus uh, innovation and instead of really working hard and thinking about how to continue to combine uh, an affordable Formula One with uh, something that still allowed uh, multiple elements of competition um, they simplified it instead for political reasons, and Michelin was uh, the casualty of that. The tyre war um, disappeared, and uh, the regulations became vastly simplified. And I think Formula One in that mo in those years um, lost a lot and was damaged a lot through the political battle between um, the, the manufacturer teams and the FIA. Yeah, and I, ju I just think that the sheer strength of what Michelin was saying once this had finally happened was indicative of um, of, of how hurt they were by it. And as, as Mark said, the, the damage that was done, you know, the, the absolutely laying into the, you know, the hidden motivations, they called it, and said that it illustrates F1's problems of in incoherent decision-making and lack of transparency. I mean, this isn't just a grumble, is it? It's not a playground scuffle. This is, yeah, exactly. And I think... Um, it it reflects it reflects incredibly poorly on the the the, the, the governance of, of of the time and yeah, maybe uh, maybe people can look back on it and say it was worthwhile because it well, it triggered in two thousand and six but I think you do you do risk trading the the fundamentals of of, of fair sport for um for for quick and easy gains. Okay, well if we if we tread any further into two thousand and six, we're going to drop two cylinders, so we'll leave it there. For now, maybe in the future, we will expand uh, this podcast to look at the V8 era as well. So let us know on social media if you want us to talk about 2006 to 2013 and we might break our own rules. But until then, remember that you can uh, chuck us your questions and comments for anything to do with 1989 to 2005 
on social media. Find at We Are The Race and use the hashtag Bring Back V10s. We'll answer as many of your questions as we can in our series finale, which is, is a few weeks away now. Next week, we'll be back and we'll be heading back another 10 years from where we've been today because we'll be revisiting the short-lived disaster that was Nigel Mansell and McLaren. That's going to be an excellent episode and we look forward to joining you for it. And we'll see you then to talk about it. Thank you.